This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Firstly, I'd like to welcome you here to the museum and acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we stand, the Gadigal people of the Ori Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. So this is a third of our really compelling lunchtime lecture sessions. We've been exploring Australians who've shaped our nation and you can also visit the award-winning Westpac Long Gallery to find out more about our guests um, to come as well as the guests we've spoken to as well as exploring this wonderful collection of 100 uh, treasured objects. So over the past two compelling lunchtimes, um, we've spoken with Ida Buttrose and Lane Beachley, who've shared their extraordinary insights, passions and challenges. I hope you'll now join me in welcoming Kim McKay, our Director and CEO, to introduce today's extraordinary speaker, Dr George Miller. Thank you so much, Sue, and welcome again to uh, all of our regular attendees. Great to see you. And uh, to those newcomers today as well to hear from George Miller. Uh, today is a sad day in the international museums world. I'm sure you all saw that horrendous footage of the Museo Nacional in Rio de Janeiro burning to the ground um, yesterday. That museum is 200 years old, so just nine years older than our own Australian museum. And our collections are almost the same size, over 20 million objects and specimens. And we do the same sort of science, and we collect the same sort of things. So our team here at the museum today is really quite shocked by this. And watching the footage yesterday, many of us were in tears because you think, my God, what if that happened here? So I just want to reassure you that uh, we have a lot of good strategies in place. Fortunately, uh, we do have a lot of good fire suppression systems here. And uh, we do have sprinklers where that beautiful historic building did not. And uh, we're taking very good care of our collections and, of course, moving some of them off-site to minimise risk of them all being located in the one place. And, of course, in that collection is one of Australia's most significant Indigenous collections, over 20,000 uh, Aboriginal objects. And so I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as well and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And those of you who've heard me say it before, the emerging leaders are very important because many of them work here at the museum and they're really forging some new ground. So today is very special because we've got uh, an Australian who has touched all of our lives through his extraordinary filmmaking and creativity. And I'm going to read the sort of formal introduction, but I know today George is a very generous person and he's going to uh, let me ask him, he said, anything. <laughs> he may regret that. I don't think so. But it's wonderful, George, to have you here and it's wonderful to have you as one of our 100 treasured people, those people who have helped shape the nation in this way. So let me just give you a bit of an insight in case uh, you didn't know into George, of course. Auteur, director, screenwriter and producer, so he can do it all, except maybe act. No, yeah. <laughs> Dr George Miller has been described as the statesman of Australian cinema. His diverse genre-breaking oeuvre 
with storylines that range from endearing family fables to action-packed post-apocalyptic sagas, has achieved classic status and launched the careers of numerous country men and women, including, of course, Mel Gibson in the original Mad Max, and uh, Nicole Kidman in Dead Calm, which is, by the way, one of my favourite films, strangely. Um, <laughs> he traces his distinguished multi-award winning career and perhaps his intense feeling for landscape to his hometown of Chinchilla in outback Queensland and the ritual Saturday matinee that dominated his childhood. He began his cinematic career in his early 20s and in 79 made his feature film de directorial debut with Mad Max. He most recently directed, wrote and produced the fourth title in the series, so many years later, uh, Mad Max Fury Road, which brought his iconic character back to the big screen. Of course, Mad Max Fury Road was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including Best Motion Picture of the Year and Best Achievement in Directing, and the film was awarded six stunning wins. Just quite incredible. A native of Australia, thank goodness, Miller earned a degree in medicine from the University of New South Wales. However, it was at a filmmaking workshop with Byron Kennedy where he met, met Byron and following the release of an award-winning short, the pair formed Kennedy Miller Productions back in 1972, which has since won more than 25 AFI awards, 10 Logies and numerous other international awards like BAFTAs and Academy Awards. With a long list of award-winning films behind him, including Happy Feet, Babe and Lorenzo's Oil, Miller is a key figure within the Australian and international film industry. He was awarded the Order of Australia for Distinguished Service to Australian Cinema and is serving as patron of the Sydney Film Festival, the AFI Now Actor and the Brisbane International Film Festival. He's also been a member of the jury at the Cannes Film Festival twice and served as president of the jury for the Palm Door at Cannes. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr George Miller. Boy, that sounds impressive. <laughs> it does. Who is that man? <laughs> uh, so, George, I've been fortunate to know you for quite a long time, actually, um, because your brother is a good friend of mine. And um, I've always just stood back and been amazed, like I'm sure many Australians, of how do you just keep that flow going of, you know, hit after hit, success after success, and I know it's damn hard work. Yes, it's, it's hard work and, and, and I think if I, you, you really don't know, but if I had to put my finger on it is that, is that I have, I think I've always had a very, very strong sense of inquiry, um, mainly about process and how things work um, and, and it doesn't matter what field it's in they all sort of lead you down a path where you get fairly wide-ranging insights into, into things. It doesn't, you know, what people who know about mastery, and I'm, I'm not saying that I have had any mastery, but people who know about it say that if you can find mastery in one area, you can usually transpose it into another. So it doesn't matter even, yeah. So, so I think I would say a very strong sense of inquiry and having the opportunity to put it into practice, putting it out there and see how much of what you thought was right, 
was indeed right or very wrong. So it's a very, very, it's a feedback loop, I think. Okay. So let's start back at the beginning. Um, you're of Greek heritage, of course. Your mum and dad were immigrants. Um, and your mum is still alive, of course. She's a terrific lady, isn't she? Yes, I'm very proud of my mum. As I like to say, she's on her 98th ride around the sun. Yeah. And, and, and she's, she's lived each one of those rides magnificently. She's a, she's a truly great woman. Yeah, she has a wonderful spirit. Now, so your parents went to Chinchilla in Queensland. Yes, they came, you know, just thinking about it, they came, both came as kids, basically, almost a century ago. And um, they grew up in, you know, the history of Europe, the diasporas, they came for, for all the reasons, mainly poverty or... Uh, in, in, in Dad's case and in Mum's case, she, she was kicked out uh, with her family in in uh, out of Turkey, mm. and they came and they made a life here, and they met uh, during the war, and uh, and they they would just my my dad went to school for one year, and my mum who actually went to school she she grew up in William Street but went to school in the first school building. I think in the building next door. Well, that's our school. That's ours, actually, the International School Building, built okay. in 1898, yeah. Well, she went to school there. Oh, great. And she, she had three brothers, um, and, and three of them were allowed to study professionally, you know, accountants, uh, lawyers, and so on. But because she was a girl in a patriarchal family, uh, she was, the best she could do was to learn... Sewing, she became a seamstress, but that didn't stop her because, like, you know, like my father, she was self-taught mm -hmm. and about life, and that's where I got. I think I got a lot of that instinct. Most of the things I've done well in life have been self-taught. And um, anyway, they gave us this fantastic life in. Chinchilla, Queensland. There were four of you. There were four of us. I have a twin brother. And um, Chinchilla, does anyone know where Chinchilla is? Yeah? Yeah. Sorry? Very remote. Well, it's, it's remote and, and it's flat and loamy. And um, what a great playground for kids. My, my parents, it was just, we spent all our time in the bush and and the most significant event was the Saturday matinee. Now, the Saturday, I asked, you know... Well, that, we should say there was no television, of course. There was no television, no internet. There was the radio and there were the Argonauts on ABC Radio. That's the only thing. Anyone remember the Argonauts? And, uh, but the Saturday matinee, you had the newsreel, the serial, a cartoon, the A feature and the B feature... The whole town went, and we took that, and it became part of our play. That's that's the thing that informed our play, and it was unfettered play. And you played cowboys and Indians. We did. We, we cowboys and Indians. We built forts and tree houses and underground tunnels. We played knights. We'd take garbage bins and paint them up. We'd make armour for ourselves. So this is where Mad Max came from. Well... Well, it certainly was with an unwitting apprenticeship for making films. I'm still doing the same thing. 
60 years later. Well, that's... This is still the same process. That's so interesting, isn't it? Because playing, which is the most fun thing to do as a child, is being incredibly effective now by video games. Playing in a different way, certainly, but very isolated play. And yet I think that creative play as a child really helps stimulate your curiosity and let your imagination go wild. Yes, definitely. I realise just how important it was now, only in retrospect. Now, interesting though, I have a twin brother and we're not identical, but we had for the first 22 years of our lives, we were literally, literally together every day. We were, to the, we were always in the same class, we went to medical school together and we... Um, and yet he went in, in a different direction. So... Um, He's a very, very bright guy. He happens to be a very, very fine doctor. Mm. Um, and he has an imaginative life, but not probably in mean, different ways than I do. He's much more verbal than I am. He's much funnier. I, the thing I envy, envy, really envy about him uh, is that he's hilarious. He just, <laughs> he really is. And uh, he, he, if there's a gene for humour, he's the one who got it in the family. So I've always noticed how people's minds develop differently, even when they had this almost identical formative experiences. That's always been interesting to me. And I, I will say the great privilege of being a filmmaker is that you encounter very high-level, creative-type people in so many different disciplines. Yeah. People who deal with the written word, the performed word, vision, composition, sound, music, composers. To do movies like Happy Feet, you're working with physicists and high-end mathematicians to write the codes to make snow or feathers on a penguin. And to see creativity across all these disciplines, you, you, you suddenly I suddenly realised one day, everybody goes through the same process. The process is the same for everybody. That, and that essentially is loading up the intellect through your curiosity and by loading up that intellect you, you, you basically look to the intuition for guidance. And the, gui the, intu the intuition, the intuitive response kind of guides you into how to solve problems. So your intuition must be quite highly developed then. You know, in a lot of men it isn't. Um, well, in some parts, <laughs> in some parts it is, you know. I, 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 I definitely realise, I, I, I don't know how much you want me to go on about this, but I, I definitely realised that, um, you know, the people used to divide the brain into the four-quadrant brain, left, right, upper and, and, uh, upper and lower left or right brain. And the upper right brain tends to be see things holistically, see things in patterns, and the lower left brain, uh, for instance, uh, tends to see things in, in, in terms of series, very mathematical, or, well, I shouldn't say mathematical, but in very simple logical sequences. Now, to really function probably, probably best in the world, you need to be bouncing between the two all the time. But if you're, it's probably wrong to define people like this, but this, is, this was very strong in psychology. I, I'm probably upper, upper right brain. 
Um, however, I've been lucky enough to exercise the other one as well because I had the benefit of medical quasi-scientific education. So that's been very, very useful. I've I, I, I noticed when I was at medical school that you needed a very convergent view of the world, basically fun, you know, paying attention to detail in some way. But I had a very divergent view of the world. Saw, saw things broadly, trying to put everything in some context, looking for patterns. And, and I think that's... That became more and more exercised, even though, luckily, I'm, I'm able to, not, not in normal everyday things, but when I'm working, I'm able to get very, very granular and very, very specific on detail, almost to the point where I drive everyone around me crazy. You have that reputation. I know Phil Noyce said that about you, that he said in an article in an interview once that one of the reasons he thought why you didn't work in Hollywood for yourself, you know, that you weren't comfortable working in the Hollywood system was because of that fastidiousness that you have, where you do drive everyone crazy around you. Well, Thank goodness he does. No, I well, I do. Well, my, well I, I, I happen to, to have a, 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 my wife, Margaret Siegel, who was the editor on the last film, Mad Max Fury Road, and... Uh, now, that is the most difficult film you could ever imagine for an editor. There were 40, 480 hours of footage oh. to get something under two hours. There's a massive amount of footage. And uh, I drove her crazy, and, uh, but she did win the Academy Award for editing. So that, that, that was... That made up for it. Let's pop back to Chinchilla for a second because your mum and dad had a sweet shop there, didn't they? A lolly shop. Well, they no, no, that that was later on later. in in Sydney. Oh, no, no, well, yeah, they had the classic Greek cafe, which they expanded into. Kind of became the a very early precursor to a supermarket. Um, so they, they, you know, my, they, they they were very. My father um, became became very skilled at things. He 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 would he you know he do all the sign writing. Uh, he. He was a photographer very early on. He wrote poetry. Um, he he just and my father and my mother was always very. She she only started painting in her eighties, but she turned out to be really quite good. She'd never thought to do it. In fact, in fact, the idea of any of us being in the artistic world just didn't didn't compute at all. Even though we were naturally doing it. Um, so then you moved to Sydney, sorry. to Vaucluse. Yes. Which must have been quite a cultural contrast to Chinchilla. Well, it was, but, but, but we, there was a, we had a bridging year where when mum and dad... Mum's parents were here and, they, and dad promised if they did well enough in Queensland that they would come down and live here. And after 10 or 12 years that they did come to be near mum's parents... We were sent to boarding school for one year. Now, my twin brother and I thought that boarding school was reformatory school <laughs> because, because they said, mum and dad says, if you boys don't behave or learn manners, you're going to boarding school. So we honestly thought we were going to a kind of prison. <laughs> now, they thought we were going to learn manners. And the first meal I went to, we was in primary school, the first meal we went to, everyone had to stand up 
it, it was Ipswich Grammar School in, in Queensland. Everyone had to stand up to say grace. While, while we were saying grace, kids would grab the bread that was piled up in the plate in the middle of the table. They'd grab a piece of bread, spit on it, and put it on their plates. Uh-huh. And we, th- th- these were the manners we learned. The reason was they claimed that piece of bread. So they, everyone wanted seconds. So that's the first thing we learned at boarding school. Take a piece of bread, spit on it, and put it on your plate. <laughs> so anyway, that was the culture shock. And uh, it was an interesting time because there, were, there was... Uh, oh, well, I won't go, in, it won't go into it. What made you and your brother decide to go into medicine then at the end of school? Well, that's, you know, that's, that's... One of my favourite sayings is, that, is from a John Lennon lyric. I think it was John Lennon who first said it. Life is what happens when well, you make, busy making other plans. When you're busy making other plans, and I, th- I found that to be so true. I always wanted to be a doctor from from the age of eight. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, it, it's it, it, but the main one was that I got very ill. I remember in the country town, and Dr. Robin came one day. My parents, the whole family, were anxious about me. I had some really high fever. I was having chills and I'm not even sure if I had a seizure or whatever. And he came and he was some magical figure and he gave us some antibiotics and suddenly everything went calm. And I thought, gee, it would be great to have that sort of experience. So I always wanted to be a doctor. And, of course, for migrant families, um, you know, to, to have a son a doctor or a lawyer, the classic thing. So my brother John, who... who um, he, he, we, we, the way that we survived being twins and avoided being com- competitive is that we always had different interests. And he said, well, if George wants to be a doctor, I'll be a dentist. So right up until we did the HSC, um, he was always going to be a dentist. Uh, but uh, and we got the identical marks in the HSC. <laughs> and and uh, we didn't cheat. There's no way he could cheat. <laughs> But we, we, but we got the identical marks. And Dad said, well, John, if you can go to medical school, then I'll, you can share textbooks and you can share a car and I'll buy you a little car and so on. So two weeks before he decided to go to medical school, he was a far better student than I was and a far better doctor and he's still practising today. And, and so... And he was just a natural for it. So something happened when you were at medical school. You were also working in Sydney as a builder's labourer on a building site. What happened with the brick? Well, I was well. This this was after I'd graduated. I, 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 it's a bit of a long story, but but the short version is, I was working. I was trying to get fit before I was to start my my residency at St Vincent's, and I had three months. And the Siebel townhouse, I don't know if anyone remembers it, it's no longer there, was being built. And I was a brickies labourer. And one day we were waiting to go to lunch and a brick fell between, we were closer than you and I, between another man and me from the 14th floor. And I thought, and, and you know, that could have been the end. So I thought, 
damn it, I, I, be, I better not waste my life. It was mm. like a jolt. Now, it turned out that one of my brothers, Chris, had won a film competition to go to the first ever film workshop ever held in Australia. That was down at Melbourne University. And he had made this film because I was studying for my final exams. I had, I'd said, here's, here's a little idea, and it, it won the prize. He shot it. So I got on my motorbike, which was 190, before helmets, tiny little bike. I rode all the way to Melbourne <laughs> and, and tried to talk myself. There were 40 places. They were all filled up. And there's an extraordinary lady called Robin Love who said, um, who said look, sorry, it's all filled up. And I, I said, okay. And I was about to get on my bike to go back to, 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 Melbourne, uh, to Sydney. And she said... Um, Oh, you got a bike? And she started about, yeah, so I'm riding it back to Sydney. She said, you rode that all the way down from Sydney? And, uh, and, uh, and I said, yes. She said, gee, you're keen. She said, go back to Sydney. I'll see what I can do. And about four days later, she said, we've made another place. Now, had that not happened, um, uh, I would not have met Byron Kennedy, who we, we started Kennedy Miller Mitchell with. We made, we made the first Mad Max with. We started television together. We made The Dismissal and Body Line, whole other things together. And, um, and I would not have got my hands on film. And in that workshop, which is only one month, I got to make my first film. And it was like a... I imagine it's like taking some highly addictive drug. I was very, very interested in how that process worked. Sliding doors. Sorry? Sort of sliding that sliding doors. Yeah. So the brick and the motorbike and Robin Love uh, came the, together. Yeah. Yeah. Into that. Now you've, I mean, the thing that you're really highly regarded for in the film world is that storytelling ability. And you've often said a monomyth or the hero's journey in cinematic storytelling is akin to Aboriginal Dreamtime stories. What do you mean by that? Well, well, this, uh, th th that's a, a long conversation, but it's very, I think it's significant. Look, I, the, I think, just very quickly, I, when I was a kid, I'd always draw and paint. We all did. And I was very, very interested in art. Like, even medical school, I was painting and, st and stuff like that. When I made film, the first film, we suddenly introduced, I was suddenly working with the dimension of time. Once you bring time to basically visual, in the, into, into a visual context, you're dealing with narrative. Once you're dealing with narrative, you're on a journey that's going to take you more than one lifetime to really understand why it is we tell each other stories. There is something which, in which we are hard, something about the way we are in which we basically interpret the world. We are hardwired to interpret the world through stories in all cultures, whatever ages, across all time. And the significance of stories, to understand that, is just a really, really huge study, best done by Joseph Campbell, who spent 40 years in a library. 40 years by himself, basically studying, first of all, comparative religions and then all, <coughs> all sorts of folklore and, and, and mythologies. 
I came up with an extraordinary book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Um, it's it's w the great inspiration between uh, behind Star Wars. That's when George Lucas first got onto it. I certainly got onto it by by the time uh, all of Hollywood's now onto it. But but I got you know for the second Mad Max. Now, the most significant and well, put it this way: the most unique thing that we have in Australia, the only unique thing we have in Australia culturally is the indigenous culture. I, I, as time goes on, and you know more now, they're saying 88,000 years ago was the earliest evidence of, 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 of that. Modern man, Homo sapiens sapiens, is probably, and you know as much about this as I would, I would it's something like 150,000 years. So we're talking about a continuous extant culture that goes back all that time and, and living in a world in which there were no um, uh, uh, animals or crops that could be domesticated, so they lived, lived a nomadic world, but their, their way of interpreting the world through stories is mind-boggling. It's one of the most extraordinary treasures we have here. And it directly connects to what we see in the cinema today, to the Greek mythologies, the Norse myth mythologies, to absolutely everything that we, we have. It's, it's a continuum. Um, uh, Campbell was asked, uh, and he, it, he wasn't, even though he studied Jung and, he, 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 and, and all those sort of things, he, he was somebody who basically made the connections between all these things. And when he was asked, What's his uh, definition of a religion? He, he, he came up with the neatest answer I've ever heard. He said, other people's mythology. And, 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 and so what's so great about the indigenous culture, in their song lines, in their stories, in, their, their, in, their, in, their, in everything they do, and it still exists in fragments today, they go to the supermarket, they go. They got their GPS tracker. They they they, they, they map out the entire ter territory through their stories. They go to church. They are astro astronomers. They can. They have stories to explain the stars, and it's practical. It's practical. It tells you where to find water, what the seasons will do, when to do this, when to find food. It's a phenomenal. When culture. to get together and have a party? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So so anyway, that's. That, and that's taken me a whole lifetime to get there, of, of, of being a practitioner in storytelling as well. I've discovered that through the stories I tell. And I think it informs all the stories I tell. Mm. So one part of your career, and I mentioned it earlier, the Hollywood experience. Of course, you've made that wonderful film, Witches of Eastwick, which was, as a cinema regular cinema-goer, it was just marvellous in so many respects. But you found that quite difficult. Yes, Kim. It was uh, it was it was a big big thing for me. Look, uh, we made we made films here in Australia. We made television here in Australia, and then we had uh, you know, of course, when when you make a success, but what's so what's so was great about America and what was great about Hollywood particularly is that they would invite you in. They weren't afraid of people coming in. In fact, Hollywood was made great basically by the immigrant uh, filmmakers mm. and directors. Every great 
filmmaker in Hollywood um, in the so-called golden era was from other, Europe, mainly from Europe, uh, and, and you know the British Hitchcock and everywhere. All those guys who defined cinema were from then, and of course that continues and still continues today. Uh, you know, I believe they're the sorts of things that the migrant populations that make any country great, and, and particularly America. Um, so, of course, we go to Hollywood. Now, the first, my first experience in Hollywood was to make a short film, uh, a, a portmanteau film, uh, with, with uh, four filmmakers, basically uh, at the invitation of Steven Spielberg. And I worked with the crew that he worked with who came off, it just came off E.T., if you remember E.T. It was a wonderful experience. I felt completely comfortable at home. I came, came back, we worked on other, other films or whatever, and then I was invited to make Witches of Eastwick, which is based on a John Updike novel, wonderful screenplay. And, um, and I, I was kind of dumb. I didn't pay any attention to the people I was working with, who turned, turned out to be worst-case scenario producers and studio heads uh, that you could imagine. I paid no attention. I thought the Spielberg experience was what I was going to find. And... It turned out that they were they were just terrible people. Like, I'm happy to name one, one of them at least, John John Peters, who's one of the who I don't know if it was all cocaine or whatever, but it was completely crazy. There was one saving grace, Jack Nicholson. He played the main character, and he, despite his uh, you know public persona, he was the the wisest man and the best collaborator you could imagine. And we had terrific actors. Yeah. There was... Um, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, Susan Sarandon. Cher. And Cher. And we were all work, work, working together. It, it's a satire about the devil. Anyway, things started to go really horribly wrong. And uh, in, in, a, in quite a corrupt way, actually. It was, and and uh, But Jack was saying... George, you gotta um, you, you gotta stick with the film. We're doing good work. When I when I realised that I could quit at any time, it would completely take the film or destroy the film, and they w they wouldn't let it happen w because of Jack. I started to realise that I had tremendous lot of power. So when I couldn't get anything after pleading with them to do the right thing. All I would do is not turn up to sit, or say, <laughs> or I'd say I'm getting on a plane tomorrow and going back to Australia, and suddenly they paid attention. Oh well, we'll we'll we'll, we'll solve your problems. Why, why did, did you, you get a lot of fruit baskets to your hotel room? <laughs> I did. I, I, ridiculous. They, they everybody thinks you're somehow a whore, yeah. and, and, and 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 that's what Sher said about John Peters. He thinks we're all whores that we've got a prize. Anyway, cut a long story short. I suddenly found myself behaving badly. I was rewarded for ba bad behaviour and punished for good behaviour. And Jack said to me, be careful, they mistake politeness for weakness. So suddenly I was becoming impolite and getting off on it. I was enjoying bad behaviour. The more I could cause the studio a problem, the more uh, they were trying to solve... Solve my problem. And 
And then I realised that that was just not a way to behave. I lost all my curiosity for making films, which was very intense. And, um, and I came, came back to Australia. And basically, by the time now, we work with Hollywood, but we can work out of Sydney. It's modern communications allows you to do that. So. Which is great. So out of that experience, I mean, uh, you've demonstrated extreme resilience over the years because you did reinvent the way you wanted to make films and base yourself here, which so many people haven't. And you've also, though, had to put up with rejection from time to time because negotiating for, you know, a big-budget film is not an easy thing. Getting money is for any project is never easy. So you've had to negotiate with the Hollywood system. How, how do you cope with rejection when they say, no, George, we don't like that idea? Or do they never say that? Well, I, 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 first of all, you learn very quickly that, you, that you, you should have a number of things going at the same time because, because anything can go wrong or right at any time. And, it, and I'm just lucky enough with I've got way more ideas in my head than I can ever, ever make or way more screenplays than I can ever make. So that's a really good thing. The second thing is... Um, he, he, there's no point in getting into what they call development hell. There's no point in putting a screenplay that's not complete, of which you know that there's still work to be done and putting into the system, because that just opens it up to um, a lot of interference. And, and, you know, when people get together, there's a lot of money and trying to figure these things out. It, it can go... Well, in fact, th that money side of it, I noticed in a story I read yesterday online, Kathleen Turner, who I'd always, you know, I've always really admired her, and uh, she said she thinks it's obscene the amount of money that actors and actresses get paid, that, you know, compared to so many other things, and it's really now throwing budgets out of all proportion in the filmmaking industry. You know, where they're hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, what did you spend on that first Mad Max film? Um, it was, well, the, 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 not, this is not a good example, but it was $350,000, mm -hmm. which, which uh, uh, in, I think at that point, the Australian dollar was higher than the American dollar. Yeah. So, but, but that meant on that film, we had to do everything. Byron Kennedy and I had to do everything. We... The script was done on a Gestetner machine. Does anyone know a Gestetner yes. machine? Yes. <laughs> when we, we had to, we had somebody who did a, a next door neighbour of his who came and would type it at night, and then we'd print them, and then we didn't we didn't have a car, uh, 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 so I'd get get on my motorbike and we'd deliver it to the crew. Whenever we did a stunt and we had to clean up the broken glass on the ground. We were the ones sweeping the ground afterwards and so on. So it was very, very, very low budget. We, we, we ran out of money. I would go and work as a locum, as a doctor. He would go and work on some other film. We cut the film in, in a flat that someone lent us. I cut, it in the, I cut the picture in the kitchen. He, he, he cut the sound in the, in the garage. Uh, 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 anyway, one, th one thing... We got through it. It was it was completely, completely, utterly exhausting, and I felt that I just wasn't cut out to make films. And worse than that, his best friend 
had put money into it and friends of his best friend and my best friend from school, Mickey Johnson, who somehow just believed in everything I ever did, said, yes, well, I'll put money in, I'll get my friends in. So now we had the responsibility of losing money, you know. Investors. In, in, yeah, of people who, who believed in you, yeah, close friends. And um, anyway, I, it, we, it somehow it, it worked. I think it was because of all the immense preparation and just raw instinct that was there. But it was didn't go how I expected it to go at all. I thought if you prepared everything, um, and you, that it was going to really work. And, um, and, and you know, I've described it as wanting to walk a really big dog, and you wanted to go this way, and it drags you off in this direction. But somehow a film came out of it, and and. It turned out to be remarkably successful internationally in every territory. Bit by bit, it said something. And that's what led me to Joseph Campbell because I wasn't foolish enough to think that I was particularly clever. I realised something else happened. So, but as part of that now with, you know, these big budget Hollywood blockbusters that just get more expensive and more expensive, do you think there's a limit? Is there a breaking point for oh, that? Oh, no. Look, look it's... it's Look, the film business is always changing. The big, big budgets. I think Kathleen Turner's wrong in many ways because that used to be the case. But now you've got you've got big actors working for relatively low fees. But the back end. Yeah, with back end on on very small, intimate art films that aren't in the big theatres. They're in the art theatres, and and they'll do it for scale, mm. like. Like really well-known actors will work for scale if they believe in the project and get rewarded if the film's successful. The big, massive blockbusters, the big... They're all superhero movies now and for a very good reason because that's all people will go and watch. Well, let, let's just talk about one change that's happened in the last few years is the emergence of Netflix and other formats like it. Now, early on you made... Uh, long-form series, you know, with the dismissal and body line and Vietnam, all these uh, TV drama specials you made. And now Netflix has sort of taken over our lives. We don't go to the cinema as much. We stay at home in our own home theatres and watch these, you know, The Crown is a great example. We just can't wait to see it all. Is that going to influence what you do next? I think it influences everybody. I mean, it's great for people like me who make content because you've got all this streaming. There's many more platforms on which to show films than, than just television and, and, um, and in the cinema when we started. Um, it's the problem with Netflix is that there's no inter engagement with an audience. Mm. And I'm still of that you know, that era, which... Yeah, I mean, going back to that Saturday matinee, the most exciting thing for me was to sit in a cinema, particularly comedies, and sh have that shared experience. Do you know one of the most... I don't know if you remember this, but many years ago, I had stopped on the way home. I can't even remember what film it was. Went to the Cremorne Orpheum, and I was sitting there on my own watching a f about to watch this film. The seat next to me was empty, and a man came along, sat next down, sat next to me. He was alone. And it was you. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> oh. 
that you just dropped into the cinema to see this film and I thought, ah, so this true love of uh, the cinema art that you wanted to see this film and off you went. Well, yeah, oh, I didn't know that. We were the only two people in the cinema. No, there were many others around us, but it was... I said hello. It wasn't like... You know, I wasn't some weirdo sitting next to you or something. It was... Well, look, you know, the only way to learn... The, you know, the, I learned to make movies in the cinema. And, and this is before you could play back a movie or, or uh, you know, you'd have to go to the, the, the movie. So, uh, uh, so I, w and I, I make a point of going to movies where there was a big crowd. You know, for instance, there was um, one, a movie I saw many, many times was What's Up, Doc? Did anyone ever see oh, What's yeah. Up, Doc? Because it was hilarious. But I went every Saturday night. I was living in Melbourne that time before we made Mad Max because I wanted to hear the audience and to really, really understand what the, you know, the rhythm of the audience. If you're a comedian, it's a wonderful thing to be a comedian because you, you know whether you can even call yourself a comedian if you're getting people to laugh. It's immediate. Well, in film, it's not, it's not that. So you have to somehow fuel your, your, your intuition with some knowledge of an audience response. Um, and, and, and gee, you know, it's quite different being on a set than being in a cinema. It's like, for example, uh, there was a, a wonderful Australian director, Richard Franklin, who'd studied in, 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 uh, in the United States with Hitchcock and, uh, or USC when Hitchcock was there. This is back in, must have been the 60s. And he was the first Australian director to bring, to use a director's chair like the classic director's chair. And a lot of people thought, oh, he's a little, little bit of a wanker, you know, why is he, you know, why is he doing this? And he pointed out something really important. And this is what he learned from Hitchcock, who, who, who would, you know, he's a big man, and Hitchcock would be like this on the set. That's exactly how most people are in the cinema. If you're on the set, all buzzing around you, your adrenaline is so high, you're not reading at the same rate and speed. Everything, by the time you get it into the cinema, is going to be feel much slower. You, it, because in the cinema, you've got nothing else to do but to watch on the, on what's on the screen. Nothing is buzzing around you. So you have to put yourself into that neutral space of repose to actually watch a movie. And if you can't get into that space as a director, if you're either too euphoric or too down, or you, you, you're not intensely focused on what's happening, you're going to miss what eventually is going to get into the cinema. Usually it's going to be too slow. So just before, I, kn I know there will be some audience questions. I don't want to run out of time. Um, what would you like your lasting legacy to be? I mean, obviously you've got this extraordinary body of work now. If, if I have to answer the question, it's something I don't think a lot about, but I'd like, I'd like it, it, it should be about storytelling, that I got to understand a little bit uh, about storytelling. Because it's ultimately, it's like every great mystery, the more you dig into it, the more you realise the mystery, the, it, 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 how, bi how big it can be. 
and it's something that I'm just, I just, yeah, it, 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 it's, and, and, and that possibly that in the cinema, you know, I got to tell some stories that last. My, my definition of a good film, how I measure uh, a good fi a film is to ask how long, is to ask how long does it follow you out of the cinema? If you've forgotten it by the time you get to the car park or by the time you get home, then it's probably not a good movie. But if something about the movie, and it varies for every individual, that one scene, it might be just a moment or scenes or a whole movie, one scene, you never forget it. And we all have those movies. And I, you know, I, and, and, and I would like, I would like to, to, to get a couple of those movies under my, my, my belt. That's the most rewarding thing. A few more yet to come. I hope so. <laughs> but, but, but life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. plans. That's it. Please thank Dr. George Miller. Thank you. Now, I know this audience will have some questions they would like to ask of you. Oh, <laughs> I would imagine. Hi. Uh, just wanted to say thank you. It's a real pleasure to, to hear you speak um, and to have enjoyed so much of your work all these years. I just wanted to ask you about Mad Max. I, I first saw the first Mad Max as a like eight or nine year old girl because my older brother always used to watch it and I watched it under duress and I didn't like it very much because it was very loud and it was all about cars and you know as I've got older and revisited the films and particularly with Fury Road I really just thought that was a spectacular film and there's something about the that character or the spectre of the character that was always kind of interesting even if I had that initial unpleasant you know interaction and I just was really curious for you what what is it about that character and his world that has continued to draw you back to to that story and that universe to to keep making those Mad Max films well that's a, um, that's really a really interesting thing to ask of myself but but basically uh, if I had to just uh, first of all the world the world, even though it's post-apocalyptic, it's really, it, it's not speculative. It, it, it's a reasonable guess of what's going to happen in 50 years if all the bad things we read, we see on the news, um, starts to happen next Wednesday. You know, of all the economic collapse, the power grid collapses, the, 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 the climate change... Really the government changes. Everything, everything happens. There's wars, limited nuclear. All those things happen, and and um, and what would happen if we were reduced? We would go back to a kind of. It's almost forward to the past, but really, all these stories, as all dystopian stories should be about, are about today. They're reflections on who we are today. It's why the American Western became such a major genre because they were morality plays set in very spare, simple landscapes. And, and that was one of the things. The first Mad Max, the French picked it up big time. And, and they picked it up and they said, oh, it's a Western on wheels. And suddenly I thought, oh, yes, it is. I had no idea. The Japanese, they too picked it, the first one up big time. And they said, 
wait a minute, this is a, a ronin, a, 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 a lone samurai wandering the wasteland in search of meaning. Um, um, in, 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 in Scandinavia, he was a Viking, a lone Viking and so on. Suddenly, uh, we realised back then, and this is what I meant about Campbell, somehow we tapped into the collective unconsciousness. This was an archetype. It's told in all storytelling. It's part of the monomyth that Campbell described, the, the heroic figure. Max was an anti-hero, but the heroic figure, basically all great religious figures follow the classic pattern. The key to it, the key to it always, and, and very few people really take notice of this when they talk about heroes, is, is a facing great fears and, re and relinquishing self-interest. At the moment of the relinquishing of self-interest, uh, often it could lead into the hero's death, that somehow uh, a boon is uh, one for, 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 the, for the greater good and their society. They re usually return with the boon. That, that's in every story. We look for sporting heroes... And if you, you know when the millennium happened and, and, and people were asked, what are the greatest sporting moments? Do you know what in Australia was the greatest sporting moment that, that every sports journalist virtually voted for in Australia? Can anyone guess? Which? Underarm? No, the greatest... Not Donald Bradman? Huh? Yes. Yes. <laughs> It was uh, John Landy who picked up Ron Clark. Uh, he stopped. They were, he, was, he was up there breaking the four-minute mile. Ron Clark, he clipped him. He, uh, there's black and white footage. That's really good because he, he clipped him. He, uh, he turned around to pick him up. I think it was the Australian Championship. I'm not even sure what it was. Um, he had a chance to break the four-minute mile, but he turned, picked up Ron Clark, he went on and won the race. Now, that's what every sports journalist in Australia, whenever it was, the turn of the millennium, said was the greatest event uh, uh, in, in Australian sports history. The relinquishing of self-interest. And, and, and I'm not saying that was what was there with Max, I'm giving a long answer, but that was certainly part of it. But there are other things as well. Um, so, so I never wanted to make another Mad Max film, but I've made four now. And the opportunity, but I can't, they live like characters in your head or the ideas live in your head. And they, when they won't go away, you either you have to explore them and if you explore them and they come out and suddenly you say, hey, this, I can't wait to see this in front of an audience and see what it means to them. And, and that, well, that's how... Fury Road came about. I, I, I pushed it away for years, but it kept coming back. But it's a wonderful world to explore. It's an allegory. It's a very, very um, huge amount of effort that goes into building that world. It's not nothing is random in it. Everything is explained. There are very strong reasons why everything is in it, in the way they speak, in the way everything is based on found objects repurposed. And usually, at, at every object that survives in that world, it, it has is in some way, uh, uh, particularly cars, 
become almost religious artifacts. And all the behaviour and all the language and everything follows from that. Um, the, you know, if you saw the film, um, you know, the, the, not only is everything made from found objects, but, um, but, but, it, but one of the rules we had was it usually has to have more than one purpose. So if, you, if those who saw the film, there's a character who plays the guitar. Uh, he's got a flaming guitar. And the guitar is a double-neck guitar and it's made from a hospital bedpan, but it's also got a flamethrower on it. He's like, the, he's like the drummer. He's blind, but he's like the fife, the fife player or the drummer or the bagpipe player leading everyone into battle, except he's got a guitar and a massive truck with all these speakers. Anyway, so those sort of thoughts... Those sort of ideas you know, influence the movie and indeed the, the character. What happened in this film is that the hero became Furiosa, the female, and that arose out of story. Yeah. I mean, that's why I liked it so much. Yeah. <laughs> Love to see more Furiosa. <laughs> that was a very long answer I'm sorry to for a the question. I'm sorry. So I, I know there is another question over here. Hello, I actually um, just spent a week doing work experience. I'm a school student at Animal Logic and we heard a lot about you and about Happy Feet. So I was wondering why you chose to get into animation and direct an animated feature and what you learnt from that experience. Well, um, it's, it's really interesting. One thing in all the films I've made or the ones I'm drawn to, I don't make many films, is uh, it's got to be... the. Story is, is the primal thing. If it's a powerful story and ticks all the boxes that I believe a good story should have, then it's something I usually move towards. But it always goes hand in hand with technology. The, 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 the tools of filmmaking have changed enormously since I've started. I've been working probably yeah, getting on to 40 years now making films. And it's phenomenal how it's changed. Um, so with Babe, the first Babe, it took us 10 years from when I first read the book to actually make the film because the digital filmmaking hadn't started. To make animals talk was really not possible to do it well except for hand-drawn animation and Babe wasn't one of those films. For Happy Feet, I had the idea and pretty much the story formed in my head and then one day, uh, a great friend of mine, Andrew Lesney, who shot Babe, um, went on to shoot The Lord of the Rings. And he came back from the first one and he showed me the first motion capture of Gollum in Lord of the Rings, uh, which was, for those that don't know, motion captures where they put on a suit on an actor and can, can take the movement in fine detail and high fidelity, and put it onto any other character. So they were able to take Andy Circus, put it onto Gollum, and the moment I saw that, I said, ah, we can make the penguins dance. And the moment that happened, uh, that, that led to happy feet. So, so uh, I, I, lo I loved animation. We had animation on the Babe movies, and, 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 and so on. And, you know, one of those films that stick in the head for me, was always Pinocchio, the first Disney Pinocchio. I saw it as a kid, never forgot it. I could play virtually every scene in my head right now. 
Isn't that great? One last question. Yes. Um, you've just mentioned one of your favourite films and that was going to be my question, if you wouldn't mind just talking about a couple of your favourite films from maybe when you were younger. Well, here's, yeah, here's the thing. It's the favourite films, because everyone's different, are the films that most affected you at a certain point in your life. That's, that's one of the functions of stories. I won't, I won't go too long, but if you read Bruno Bettelheim on why children like stories, the same stories over and over again, and then one day we'll say, they don't want that story anymore. They'll watch it in films or they want to have it read. It's usually they're processing something, and I think we're processing something. So for me, of course, Pinocchio, which I remember, uh, Godfather 2, I think, is one of the greatest films ever made. Um, for me, two films, which were another highly influential moment of my life, was I was at university, I was at a loose end, I was going in the, past the cinema in town, and I walked into I saw a poster with two women's legs, uh, American flag, and, and the V sign. And I said, what the hell, what movie is that? I've got to go and see that movie. I walked in and it was MASH, Robert Altman's MASH. Right. I'd never seen anything like it. I, I, I didn't have much money. I watched the movie. I, I paid, went back straight into the movie and watched it again. Then I walked out. It was night time and I was on a high. I thought, I'd seen something. I imagine, you know, when, I don't know, musicians first see a great musician or Painter sees a great painting or whatever. I, th I had, to, had to go and see another movie. I walked down the street and there was a film. Uh, the first film I, I saw was a film called Battle for Algiers. Now, those who don't know Battle for Algiers, extraordinary documentary type film uh, made by a great Italian director about uh, literally the Battle for Algiers. Again, completely different from MASH. And I just came out with an intense sense of the potential of cinema from those two experiences. It's a day I'll never forget. I think that's a wonderful way to end today, George, the potential of cinema. And we hope that you'll continue to create a few more great potential pieces of cinema that we can share in, without doubt, Australia's greatest storyteller, Dr George Miller. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.